This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of the Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Jacob Mitchell is the founder of Antipodes Partners in Sydney. I first met Jacob many years ago, not long after he left his prominent role as Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Platinum. Antipodes Partners has grown very fast to become one of Australia's leaders in global long-short stock market investing, with Jacob overseeing around $8.5 billion of capital at the time of recording. Jacob and his team actively pursue short ideas as part of their unique three-dimensional quantitative and qualitative investment process. Jacob and I discuss his process in detail, recent macro events, the concept of irrational extrapolation and clustered research. I trust you'll enjoy this episode with Jacob Mitchell of Antipodes Partners. Jacob, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Alan. It's good to be here. Uh, I, I remember when you first started Antipodes, it's going back a few years now, and it's, it's great to see the success that you've had. In this podcast, I think our listeners will get a lot from knowing who you are and why you started the business, but then also delving into your process a bit more deeply. Some of the presentations you've done recently have been very good. They've gone into a lot of depth around some of the topical issues uh, facing the world today, the the global economy, if you like, and also in parts of Asia. So I'm keen to, to get into the process and security selection throughout the conversation. But perhaps <coughs> we can kick things off with just tell us a bit about yourself, where you grew up and why money finance and investing was part of your childhood, if it was or if it wasn't, just any experiences you have growing up with it. Sure. Um, yeah, into the deep end. Um, <laughs> the uh, so I grew up in uh, outer Western Sydney, so in in Penrith um, mm-hmm. and um, Penrith, not with uh, not with an F, <laughs> with the TH. Uh, and uh, yeah, look, it was it was always um, yeah, formative experiences. I suppose my you know always remember my grandfather as a he was a small businessman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ran a butchery. Uh, my folks actually met out in a small country town where, where my mum grew up. And uh, so country folk came down to, to, to the, the, the big smoke to, mm-hmm. to get their kids a, a decent education. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it was, um, I think, oh, just memories of my grandfather working. I thought, you know, this, this is very interesting. This guy arrived in the country on one of the uh, dreadnought boats mm-hmm. or dreadnought they were known as the dreadnought kids so they yep. came out from great britain uh he was i think 15 and had nothing and uh, went out and worked out in sort of uh, rural western new south wales and built enough capital to you know mm. get a small business and so that's 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 pretty impressive i always that that sort of inspired me i think that you know you can you can go places in this australia you know is is for better or worse well, it's a very positive thing that there's still quite a lot of social mobility in this country. I mm. think it's what makes 
drives productivity, drives the entrepreneurial sort of uh, spirits that you see in, in this country compared to, you know, some older, more conservative countries that, you know, I've spent some time in, in Europe and you, you just don't feel that same energy and vibe. And uh, that's, that's, I think a lot of that is because of where we came from mm. as, a, as a country. And, um, you know, for me, it was sort of trying to get educate, you know, University of Western Sydney, obviously not not a not a name university but uh, for me getting a commerce degree was a stepping stone to get into into finance I, I was inspired also I think just by what was going on politically at the time and economically you know Australia was starting to show uh, you know more d- dynamic approach you know Keating and Keating's reforms. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was the early, late 80s, early 90s? Late 80s, early 90s. And, and you know, you saw all these crazy entrepreneurs who came out of the woodwork and um, mm. they weren't really business builders. They were more financial engineers and obviously <laughs> it, it, it ended badly. But, you know, I was in year 12 studying for my HSC. I was, you know, I had my head in the paper, you know, the financial review, you know, reading about what bond and scase were up to and, and trying to work out what was the linkage between what was going on in the business world and what was going on in the economy? Mm. And they and they were linked because it was you know a lot of that was driven by deregulation. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, so that that in a way that's why I, I had it in my head that I wanted to be I wanted to understand how to invest mm-hmm. and how to value businesses and so it was a question of then how to get there. Yeah. So. I think, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit, we can see that play out in the business that you've built today. How about your first job out of uni? It seems to me when I look back at your CV or your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you came from relatively a humble first job out of uni and, and you quickly rose through the ranks. So perhaps you can shed, shed some light on that and maybe the first few years out of uni. Yeah, as I said, university, stepping stone, um, yeah, my, my father was an engineer and I, I suspect doing a commerce degree was probably a little bit disappointing from that perspective. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, that's what I wanted to do, I, you know, and, um, it, it, you know, it was in the middle of the recession we had to mm. have and yep. there weren't many, you know, in terms of trying to crack, like, re- like get into investment an- analysis, which is what I wanted to do, stock analysis. Mm. Yeah, I had to either go to the, my, you know, my first choice was the buy side. <clears throat> so Australian sort of funds management was still starting. And there were, there wasn't as many choices as you have today. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still dominated by big, big brands, big institutions. Mm-hmm. Or you could go to the, the sell side, uh, but it was the middle of the recession. So sell side was certainly not hiring mm-hmm. any, anyone other than maybe the absolute top, yeah. top grads. Uh, so it's a pretty competitive environment. So my my break was to start with a non-profit organisation as a just as a as a like a finance pretty pretty simple job. Yep. Just basically paying the bills, the admin side of things. Admin and um, and that was the it was actually Dusseldorp Skills Forum, which Dick Dusseldorp, who founded Lend Lease. Oh uh, right, yeah. You know, uh, they feel when he retired, this they set up a, like, you know, like a basically a foundation, a charitable foundation to uh, research vocational training, sponsor mm-hmm. different vocational training. You know, one of the things, one of the related 
entities ran the skill trade Olympics, the skill, you know, mm. there's, there's a global federation that runs these um, trade Olympics. And so, you know, I met some interesting high achievers who, you know, non-white collar, you know, blue collar high achievers as mm. a part of that job. But uh, very soon just was actually just, you know, running the, um, the finance side of that. So it was the, um, was doing board reports and presenting to the board on, and, and there was a, because there was money, there's a lend lease actually set aside some shares right. and, uh, to fund that foundation. And so we had to, you know, that was an opportunity to, to get exposure to some relatively senior, you know, finance, uh, let's call it financial advisors and mm-hmm. get, get, you know, get insights on how they think about risk because we had to run a, a balanced portfolio of equities and bonds and cash. I was thinking, you know, how does that all work? Mm. Um, but from that, um, I managed to get a job a couple of years, uh, three years in with uh, Tyndall Australia who were advertising, small insurance company, that kind of looking for an analyst, uh, trainee analysts, and they didn't really want they wanted people from a different you know from different backgrounds it was a f- the job itself wasn't even advertised in the financial review it was in the general classifieds of the of the herald okay yeah <laughs> so um yeah so they hired two two trainees i was i was one of them and uh and that that program that sort of induction uh, was led by peter pedley who uh was he was on sort of a He'd been like a, a, a secondment from Briley Investments. Okay, yep. To to Tyndall to build up the investment process, and um, it's yeah, a very thorough process, uh, quite um, you know rigorous. Peter was a very strong, big personality, strong personality. Mm. Uh, didn't suffer fools. Uh, didn't like wasting time. So he'd give you something to think about on Monday morning, and then you had the rest of the week to think about it. And next, the following Monday, you know, you'd be given a chance to present mm-hmm. and you either got, you know, <laughs> you got either progressed to the next stage or you had to go back, go back and spend another week thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So it was very much teach, teach yourself, but within a framework of learning. Yep. And uh, it was awesome. Yeah. I can imagine it's kind of like just supercharged your learning because you've just thrown in the deep end and said, yeah. here you go, this is your project. And there was six months of that, you know, from... You know what? What's why are earnings yields? What what's a dividend yield? What's an earnings yield? Why do ROEs matter? You know mm. what valuation multiples are useful? Should we look at enterprise value or how do we think about equ- the relationship between equity valuations and enterprise valuations? How do we think about the relationship return on capital? And yeah, it's all this a lot of technical stuff, mm. admittedly, but um, it's yeah, it's the foundation. It sounded like what you needed at that point of your career, anyhow. Yeah, and um, and 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 Peter was a, a, a pretty savvy investor, so it was very advantageous to be exposed to to mm. that type of experience early on. And after six months, you're thrown in the deep end as part of the Tyndall investment process, and mm. you know you're picking stocks. So it couldn't be a better way of couldn't have been a better way of getting started. So you you started on Australian equities in Australian mm. equities, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. three years at Tyndall. Comes yeah. um, high conviction, con- yeah, concentrated portfolio, sort of quite different at the time. Mm. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty standard now. But at that point in time, like having a twelve stock, large cap Australian portfolio was was fairly, uh, fairly out there. Yeah, fairly out there. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. And how about the, I suppose, this, this next step in your career? Because already listeners and I have seen that you've gone from administration, you've got this exposure to the investment process and, and, and stock picking. Yep. And for, for listeners who know you and know where you've come from, you've progressed very quickly from the outside, it would seem, from there up to being a, a senior member of one of the more established Australian investment firms. So perhaps you can describe that next step in your career. Uh, yeah, Tindall, you know, had a great, great place to get to know the top 50, 100 companies in Australia. But as you, as you know, you, you're fairly sector constrained. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, you become an expert in banks and resources and a bit of retail. And um, that's, that's oversim- about it. O- oversimplification. But, you know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, my, for me, it was always, oh, look, how do I go to global? I want to go to global. Actually, Platinum had started, I think it was the year I went to Tyndall. I think that was the year Platinum actually started, right. uh, 1994. Okay. So I was watching these guys because, you know, they were lauded masters mm. of the universe and, <laughs> you know, and it was, you know, it was a, it was, it was a great story um, and um, it's a separate story. But uh, so that was my mission how to get to global and I thought platinum was the natural place to to end up so um stepping stone for me was uh the sell side at uh, UBS mm-hmm. you know when I thought I'd exhausted that sort of learning a lot, lot about the Australian large caps um I thought you know it would be interesting to see how the sell side operated and also just get the, the opportunity that was presented to me was to join their what they called their small cap team mm. became their emerging companies team as, as small caps became more growth oriented mm-hmm. and you know how how to sort of approach the analytical challenge on a more micro at a more micro level where management you know um, industry you, you're dealing with less mature companies mm-hmm more maverick management <laughs> uh so there's more more risk more unknowns and sort of then trying to basically navigate that um and also just the pressures on the sell side of not only analyzing but ultimately communicating mm. you know and i thought that's that would always be something to, good to have in the in the toolkit because mm-hmm. you can be a great if you're operating as a part of the investment process, it's imperative that you can actually get your ideas across simply because mm. you're dealing with complexity and there's always someone else involved in the decision. Always. Mm. Even now, as this, you know, even, even, probably even more so now for me as, this, as the lead manager at Antipodes um, is you know, being able to... I'm relying on other people's concise communication, but I also have to give concise feedback. Mm, for sure. Mm. It seems like if I'm already picking up what you've put down so far, it seems like you had a vision for yourself three to five years out into the future and that was your goal. Would I be right in saying that, that you were motivated and you set these goals for yourself, you know, your career goals and progression? Or was uh, it never that explicit? Yeah. Uh, look, I got a lot of enjoyment out of the... Investing, like I mean, when I was you know, before joining Tyndall, I had started investing. So mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was uh, always for me that was 
this is an interesting job where you can you do something you love and not only do you get an opportunity to to earn an income but you can actually grow your capital mm. and um yeah, I think I learned some lessons, some hard, you know, maybe some hard lessons early on in terms of how to about the importance of preserving capital. <laughs> but, but I think I also realized that when you're young, you should actually take, you know, you should be prepared to, you know, to take some some risk mm. um, if you could control it. You know, if it was, you know, if it was, you're doing it in a way where you, and maybe <laughs> at the time I wasn't really aware of how bigger risks, you know, the sorts of risks I was taking, that mm. um, generally they, they, they worked, whether it was buying resource companies. You know, my first investment, I think that made me any significant amount of money was really based on a, this idea that, you know, this resource company was going to get taken out. Right. Okay. <laughs> and it was as simple as that. And that was the end of it. And yeah. it happened. So <laughs> it's like, and I, and that was, you know, that's, that's not a. That's not the way. You know, Tyndall certainly knocked that out of me in terms of that's not investing. That's called getting lucky. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's fortuitous, that's for sure. But, uh, but yeah, no, maybe thinking ahead and thinking, well, if this is fun at a local level, it's probably even more fun if you can go global and you can look at, you know, the most interesting company mm. in the most interesting industry anywhere in the world, mm. and. Um, and the intellectual challenge of that, I suppose, and the problem solving that challenges that go with that mm. have just always kept me engaged. And uh, it's probably one of the few I don't know, activities or careers where you professions, if you like, where you are, you never, you never stop learning. Mm. You know, it's, it's, there's always something else to, to look at or understand or asset class, you know, mm. even we're equity guys, but you know, you don't invest in equities within a vacuum, mm. you know, understanding how other asset, how asset classes are rated against each other, mm. uh, currencies, how do you value currencies? I mean, that's something that, you know, comes with global investing, you know, managing currency risk. Mm. Uh, there's always a new challenge. Mm. Uh, I think, what going back to the very first episode i interviewed uh wayne peters of peters mcgregor and he said the one thing that is required to be a great investor is curiosity and it seems you had that in spades and um i see that all the time with investors that even from, from the very first share that they buy they discover something and then they almost never stop learning this is a perpetual learning i'm interested now as we move to the back end of the career and, and you your I suppose maybe it was testing the water with both feet, but I'd say with one one foot starting antipodes after leaving platinum. But our listeners will be interested to understand how you got to platinum. Do you remember the, the first few days, perhaps, or first weeks, or first experiences, and then how you progressed through the firm, and then ultimately decided to step off into antipodes? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. Curiosity, absolutely. Um, I think. Historically, also investors who have you know, maybe had a outside, been natural observers, um, you know, you, I see some investors who are quite quirky from a personality, mm -hmm. very successful investors who are quite quirky from a personality perspective. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's that's a, a coincidence. I think you know that's that's a part of being a little bit standing back mm -hmm. and watching and observing what's going on. You know, in industries, being prepared to take 
sometimes take the not being contrarian for just for the sake of being contrarian. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting I'm one of those personalities, although um, others may have a different view. Uh, <laughs> but certainly just growing up in where I grew up and, you know, my pathway to getting into this business, I certainly felt like I was somewhat, you know, doing it the, the hard way. Okay. And I did feel like a bit of an outsider. And, um, and absolutely, I think that... You know, made when I hit the ground running at Tyndall, you know, you, know, you see things that maybe, or maybe it's young eyes, or you just observe industries and you think, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. That's not in the price. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, so Platinum really just took that small cap, probably just rounded me out from, I'd done Aussie large caps, Aussie small caps, you know, sort of buy side, sell side, <laughs> um, was ready to go, ready to go global. Platinum was still maybe one of really only two mm -hmm. opportunities in Sydney. Okay. Um, yeah, I didn't do the gap year um, <laughs> until recently. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, care, I think, it's crazy. Yeah, I went through the interview process. I'd, I'd, I'd spoken to them on, you know, mm -hmm. on a number of prior occasions. Uh, it never, never kind of worked out, but uh, maybe it was the timing... 2000 um first day in a couple of days in yeah care because it was very much in that sort of um you know the shorting the tech stocks and it was the it, the firm had had eight years of of you know really being up against a growth market mm. and yeah and I, I look it's it interesting because i could could still see there was this energy yeah there's I think there was a sense that this is our time, you know. Finally, the the US tech stocks that were cracking, and mm -hmm. um, um, but um, I was really left in some ways just to do. Um, I don't know, sort of a bit like Tyndall when I started. It was go away and think about, you know, just just go away <laughs> and do your own thing. And if when you think you've got had a, a, a decent idea, bring it to me, right? Um, and occasionally I might be given something to look at and form a view. Um, first idea I think that I, we invested in wasn't exactly a success, <laughs> but uh, I probably learnt, learnt a few things mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, you know, the, the need to really, really, you know, the, the, the fact that Global had gave you the opportunity to just to, to only touch, touch the best company, you know, only look at the best companies ultimately when they became cheap. And that was that was a difficult time because there weren't many cheap companies, certainly not in the areas I was I was covering. What were you covering? I was sort of doing business a combination of business services, um, tech services, manufacturing. A little bit. Then it sort of morphed into being general industrials, transport. Yeah, right. Um, I think we, you know, one of early on we bought one of my early investments, which was successful, was a company called Clayton Homes. Uh, okay. Yeah, the builder of uh, otherwise otherwise known as like a you know trailer mm -hmm. trailer homes in the US. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, that was an industry that had gone through a big uh, credit crunch. Mm. Um, part of the very dependent on securitized finance and even prior. To, you know, this is sort of a mini GFC if you like. Mm. Securitized markets for the for these companies all shut down. Right. And the industry, you know, volumes in the industry like sort of halved huh. and a couple of companies went broke and Clayton, but Clayton had this sort of integrated model 
and a very well-run business and they could control the credit. They hadn't done any really incredibly reckless lending. Mm-hmm. It'd been because they always had skin in the game. So even if they securitized portfolios, they you know kept the the equity strip and yeah, they basically did the right thing. Yeah, they didn't just sell houses to anyone and finance them, you know, with no you know no expectation that the loan would be paid, which is what some of the competitors did. Mm-hmm. did. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, debt collecting this industry in this industry is pretty. Uh, it's involves you know you can pretty aggressive mm-hmm. tactics so you you, For sure. you you don't want to be you want to run it you want to run it well um anyway that business ended up getting bought by buffett because he um he could finance you know he had the balance sheet to fix the securitized the credit issues and mm. he just wanted a good management team to back as as he does yeah yeah um <laughs> so yeah i was doing a bit of everything basically that's good i suppose the first idea that paid off really well to have an investor like that and come in and yeah. uh, <laughs> the confirmation bias is there it would have been a, a great morning in the office oh well, it wasn't it wasn't we, you know we thought he bought it very cheaply so oh, right. you know, um and um you know he bought one of our you know he, he, he did the same but you know to his credit he, he saw the long-term opportunity in the market sure. wasn't willing to price it in and mm. and that's what we you know that's what we mean when we talk about irrational extrapolation it's it's really just the observation that you know, industries do go through a cycle even in today's world of uber disruption hmm. that disruption would ultimately mature and when it matures it will become cyclical and you know these the, the all these SaaS companies that are changing the world will ultimately mature and then their businesses will hmm. be cyclical you know manufactured homes <clears throat> uh were always cyclical mm. but you know you were buying sort of at the bottom of the cycle mm. and uh, and buying a great business yeah you know, a business that could grow take market share um even mm. in a tough a tough industry because it, it simply had evolved a better mousetrap but mm. mm. uh, there's one more specific question i want to talk to you or ask you about and that's your time when you're at platinum during the gfc mm. and i think it's because it's the most recent, it, it's it's a good opportunity to talk about some of the lessons learned in a downturn, and I suppose how your process and your thinking has evolved from any of those experiences. So, if you could share any of those, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's a generation of investors I think you know have been sort of somewhat scarred by the GFC, and um, in, 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 like we platinum and myself, personally myself got through the GFC in pretty good shape. So you know, mm. we we had good. Um, good downside protection uh by that stage i'd been you know i was working primarily on north american i'd sort of started on global sectors i had some time covering indian you know as oh, right. a country india yeah. as a country and then was you know focused more broadly on north america and um so you know we had good we had decent short protection we, you know, we shorted some of the very weaker yeah, REITs and um, right. yeah, we knew they'd been very dependent on what was going on in credit mm-hmm. markets and some of them were, you know, just, you know, being, you know, just taking on too much leverage. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, uh, how does, I think it, what we learned or what what prepared us well, I think, for what happened or what was happening in the in the GFC was, was probably the 10 years prior to that where... Uh, 
let's call it for me, eight years, but leading up to the GFC, just working on different industries and just looking at how credit markets were evolving. Mm-hmm. And just the simple observation that, you know, loan origination, like the, the credit assessment and the ownership, you know, had been unbundled mm. through the, you know, through innovation. And then, you know, we, we, we then fully understood that the you know, CDOs were then allowing the market to, you know, really bundle quite, hor- you know, quite very low quality mm. exposures and, you know, into AAA rated paper. And so it wasn't, yeah, we weren't sitting there going, oh, wow, what's going on? You know, we, <laughs> we actually yeah, knew what was going on. So you could see it. Yeah, we could see it. It was we were eyes wide open. Okay, and um, which had made us quite. Yeah, we we weren't exposed to U.S. financials, and we had fairly moderate exposure to financials anywhere in the world, and uh, and we had significant you know, yeah, you know, let's call it shorts that were very much credit market sensitive. Okay, in the book, and they they gave us the protection, um, but you know. What you don't want all your alpha to come from one macro event, right? So no. I think the the lesson for 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 me as an investor was, well, that's great. Yeah, you've got to think about those tail risks and how to protect investors when you know when they become real and when you start the yeah, unless you're thinking and doing the research in a in in a sort of a, a proactive way, you're not going to be ready. Mm. Um, but you also got to think about well. Yeah, what matters over the long term, right? What matters over the long term is being long, interesting companies, mm. uh, great companies, generally in areas of the market that are growing, generally, mm-hmm. um, and you know, in backing management teams that can execute well, and businesses that inherently have barriers to entry, you know, and you know, can protect their position, mm-hmm. and those companies are rare. Right, so mm-hmm. you, you've got to have as an investor appropriate focus. Eighty percent right? of your time should be spent on identifying those companies. Twenty mm-hmm. percent thinking about macro and tail risk. Absolutely, if you do, if you keep that balance, I think it will stop you being, you know, too macro at mm-hmm. the wrong time. You okay. know, because. Yeah, it's that's it's often the right time to be investing, right? When a lot of these things are flashing red. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting way to quantify. I've never heard anyone put it like that. And um, we always talk about bottom up and top down. Um, think about it in terms of eighty twenty. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And um, let's talk now about the transition to antipodes, mm. where the idea came from, and then maybe you can just kick things off by telling listeners who aren't familiar what the business is that you started what you do and where it is today. Sure. Um, so Antipodes Partners, you know, we describe our philosophy as pragmatic value and pragmatic means it's an awareness around when businesses become cheap, you know, what's leading that? Is it because people are concerned about the business cycle or is it, or are they concerned about something much longer term that may be disrupting structural changes that may be disrupting the business? Mm. Because, uh, you know, what we found, you know, from value investing um, is that, you know, sometimes people get lazy and they, they simply start believing that mean reversion works. Mm. You know, I buy something, 
I buy this company when it when it gets to this PE and I sell it when it gets back to this PE because the, you know it's getting bailed out by the cycle. And then one day that doesn't happen. Mm. One day that stopped happening with newspapers. You know, one day that stopped happening with traditional broadcast TV companies. Mm. And it's because you know the, the cycle, the structural story is is overriding. You know, the the, the long term structural decline starts to override the the, the, the business cycle. Mm. So pragmatic value, we're trying to avoid value traps but it's still an awareness around value you know ultimately we're looking to buy great businesses when they become cheap so we will be having some sort of argument with the market mm. you know the market will be saying oh this business is broken or you know um this, these regulatory changes of you know it's, it's going to make it much harder for this company to make money and it's it's sort of in the cool light of day trying to assess whether that's right Mm. You know, whether that's rational or irrational extrapolation. Mm. Um, How is that different um, or why, you know, the motivation for, for doing this at Antipodes? Um, you know, look, I thought we could, at a, at a stock level, you know, I could execute that quite well where I was. I thought at a portfolio level, um, I needed more tools, more, okay. more of a toolkit. So... Um, greater sophistication around some of the quantum macro um, measuring um, using you know doing more factor analysis to identify you know how your portfolio how it's characterized uh, you know you might think you've got a whole lot of cheap growth stocks or cheap quality stocks which is really what we're looking for mm -hmm. at Intibities. Um but what if and your factor scores may tell you that that's the case, but what if they're not behaving that way? Mm. Right? How long do we have to wait for them to behave that way? Right. So in a market that, you know, in the, the past 12 months, arguably we're living through a period in markets that's rarely ever been more sensitive to growth. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, what I mean is, if you were to do a bench, if you create an index of companies that are high growth mm. and see how their share prices are, how the market's behaving relative to that index, when the growth stocks are going up, the whole market's going up. Like the correlation to the market's correlation to growth stocks is very, very high. Mm. That's, you know, so if your stocks are not, your growth stocks aren't growth sensitive, you may not participate in that, you know, mm. that, that bull market. And are you saying that this correlation is very high now or has it always been the case that... No, it changes all the time. I mean, there's times when markets are, are very pro-cyclical mm -hmm. and it's, you know, the cyclicals lead the market. And when the cyclicals are having a good day, the market's having a good day. Mm. Um, and um, there's times when it's, it's very bond proxy. Mm. Uh, you know, it's 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 utilities and 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 when it, when those stocks are having or those sectors are having a good day, the market's having a good day. Mm. So it's it's not just I suppose quant for us is three dimensional, um, and it has two roles. So I'll start with the roles. Yeah, we think quant helps us track the anomalies, and it helps us to know where we should focus the fundamental research effort. It's complementary to our experience. Yeah, so it doesn't doesn't dictate. Just because something looks cheap, we may say, well, actually, that's a value trap. Or it's, but it's contextual understanding of 
where the interesting parts in the market may be. So where could we find, what are the quant tools or screening tools telling us, where is their cheap quality growth stocks today? Mm-hmm. That type of screening, actively targeting certain factors to, uh, to identify opportunities as a part of the fundamental research process. So identification. Yep. The second role is uh, risk management. So, and and I'll I'll start off describing that by just you know this three dimensional view of quant. So, quant will tell you what a company is. I backward looking. Yep. Uh, in terms of, okay, this company is in the top decile of quality or bottom decile of growth, but has a great balance sheet. So it's you know, you know third decile of resilience mm-hmm. so you can you can have a whole lot of descriptors the second dimension is forget about all those descriptors how does the stock actually behave does it have a beta what style does it have a beta to mm-hmm. um, and then the third and or what macro you know is it sensitivity to uh, long yields or US dollar so mm-hmm. sensitivities to style and macro factors how does it actually behave mm-hmm. Now that will change, but it's uh, it's very important, I think, to have that understanding. Uh, and then thirdly, what am I paying? Mm. So most value investors just think about the value factor, whereas we think the value factor should be applied to every fundamental factor. You know, if you've got a quality company, mm-hmm. what's what am I paying? If I've got a growth stock, what am I paying? Mm. So it's it's not a standalone. F- we, we don't see it as a standalone factor. On its own, it tells you nothing, right? Multiple, you know, mm. higher growth, higher profitability, you know, companies with higher growth and profitability should trade higher multiples. So mm. On its own, it really doesn't tell you a lot. Um, it may tell you what, at a point in time, what the market looks like from a distribution of multiples, so P dispersion. Mm. I think that's interesting. By the way, that's very high today. <laughs> so, you know, across within regions and within sectors, it's, it's, it's quite high. So the averages, when you look at an average, you're not seeing a lot of information at the moment mm. because there's broad dis- distribution around the average. Mm. Uh, okay. Well, there's actually, I think you've mentioned something in a recent presentation you've done, which we'll get to towards the back end of the conversation. But can... You just flesh out more of what you mean by this irrational extrapolation. And I think I've heard you say before that there are kind of like three examples. And you, you alluded to them before, but perhaps you can just run through them and, and what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, it's as simple as, um, okay, you've got um, – let's talk yeah, a specific example. So we own Honda okay. in our portfolios today. So, you know, on, <clears throat> on – 0.7 of book, P of uh, 7, dividend yield of 5, roughly. Mm. Right. Um, so <clears throat> Honda, you know, people think it's a, it's, it's an auto OEM. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, its largest profit pool today is motorcycles. Right. Uh, so, and it's not the road, Honda road bike that you might see out there on the street. Mm-hmm. It's actually scooters and, you know, small scooters and, and motorcycles in emerging markets where it's the preeminent mm. dominant uh you know uh, manufacturer and brand mm-hmm. that is an incredibly attractive business you know high margin high growth and 
massive barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, the value of that alone accounts for all of Honda's market cap. You know, you're not paying anything for the car business. Mm. That's now why? Why is that? I'd argue it's because the market is okay. So cyclically extrapolating that you know you've got weak EM growth, weak global growth. Okay, yep, you do. So tick. Mm-hmm. Now, will it always be weak? That's where I'd argue the market's now being a bit irrational. Mm-hmm. You know, we it's the it's you know growth is cyclical. Economic growth is cyclical. It will recover at some point. The biggest bigger concern for the market is structural changes that are happening in autos. You know, the transition, how capital intensive is the transition to EV going to be? Will autonomous driving, ride share, what do these things mean for auto demand? Mm-hmm. Um, so that structural change, is it, does it make the average auto OEM a value trap? Mm. that's now we think that's irrational to the extent that it's too simplistic yes there'll be winners and losers but uh you know the most important thing is to is to back the winner and i think you know in the case of honda we think it's it's dealing with those structural challenges in a very rational way now the third aspect we would argue of changes that can often lead to a you know a mac irrationality we we would just describe as broader macro socioeconomic changes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's, in the case of Honda, it's hard to be specific on anything I can think of at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, you could take other industries where, um, okay, you can sort of see it in happening, I think, in... Um, well, in, in a, a good example, I think, in regards to Honda is simply what's going on in Japan in a positive way in regards to governance and okay. focusing, you know, the government through GPI, the, through the GPIF, which is the government pension uh, plan. Um, and also um, just through, um, pro, you know, through policy, just putting more pressure on corporates to be shareholder friendly. Okay. And, uh, and act, that's why there's more activism taking place in Japan. And, you know, Honda is vulnerable. I mean, they they should be paying out, should be being more aggressive on buybacks. You know, got a very cheap, you know, attractively valued yeah. equity. They should be buying back. They've got surplus capital. Uh, that's, that's broader positive change, mm-hmm. uh, which we think the market's not recognizing and hence is being irrational. Mm-hmm. That was a, a phrase that stuck with me, irrational extrapolation. But another... I suppose, neat, uh, I suppose, concept that you bring to the table and we spoke briefly off air about this is the way you structure your teams and, and ideas. So you've spoken about the quant filters, how that identifies opportunities and gives you particular insights that probably many other investors wouldn't have. But the way you invest and structure your team is such that you invest in clusters or you have particular clusters, might be for a sector or you know, region. Can you explain what you're trying to do with the clusters and how that benefits your process yeah look it's it's yeah two two benefits and you know the goal is basically we think if we concentrate on industries yeah basically lead with industry expertise Mm -hmm. um and each of the teams is on average four two senior analysts plus a you know a sector head a senior analyst 
um, and, and a couple of associates. So we've got, you know, we've got the horsepower in those teams and they're really the way we've designed remuneration is to encourage collaboration. Okay. Uh, so they operate as teams mm-hmm. and they're, you know, they're effectively building shadow portfolios as teams um, of their best ideas and they're clustering within those industry shadows mm-hmm. and they've got use of the quant tools to see where they've got correlation which they may not know about mm-hmm. and uh, and thinking about how they need to manage that. So it's all what we're doing at the head portfolio is really just bringing, bringing those insights that are and uh, from the models at each of the industry teams. Um, look, that, um, that process is, is about um, what we want is from that industry insight, it's then saying, okay, um, this is interesting. What are the investment case candidates? Mm. And you know, what we find is, you know, there'll typically be more than one, you know, there'll be, and there may be in fact, a long and a short or a number of longs and a number of shorts. And it's taking the best of those ideas um, as a part of that process. Mm. Um, in our experience, if every piece of research is just to stand out, what, you know, if you design a structure which just leads to single stock notes, stock meetings around single stock ideas, you're just leaving a lot on the table. Mm. Because, and you may be making errors of judgment because you haven't started broad yeah, the industry research is really long term, and you know we unbundle that from the investment case, mm-hmm. and we allow the investment teams to do that slow thinking. You mm-hmm. know, to go to conferences, to think really long term around where where the industry is going and who the relative winners losers are, mm-hmm. uh, because we're invest the way the market is. The market's clearly operating on that time horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's celebrating you know the winners are typically you know people are willing to put them on the high multiple now not all of those companies will prove to be winners mm. i am absolutely certain because <laughs> i think there's a fair amount of hype for yeah, sure around disruption but we have to think on that time horizon yeah you know, when you're thinking about us retail it must start with a view on amazon mm. <laughs> you may not end up wanting to buy it but if you're going to buy someone and you you potentially want to be buying a company that is not a part of its you know it's not in its competitive sort of crosshairs Mm, for sure um so we think industry lead with industry investment cases will follow from that that's the industry research is the slow thinking the investment cases tends to be the more um you, you need to be more market sensitive i.e you need to be ready to pull the trigger when the market gives you the opportunity Mm. you know so the the investment case it's not that it when we say fast thinking as in it has to be rushed not not in that sense in the sense that that will be more time definite Mm. so if you know a certain industry is becoming cheap and you know you might want to accelerate the industry research and get the investment cases done so you're ready to act, you know, at the cyclical low point, or when the structural concerns are most pronounced. Mm. Um, yeah, I think interesting. You know, if you think about the big drug stocks today, it's the one part of healthcare that hasn't been significantly re-rated. Okay, and you know, for good reason. You know, the, the structural patent cliff, 
political focus on drug prices. So it's it's probably worth looking at it now mm. right, to to test whether that view is whether the general view and the general concerns around structural pressure is right in every case. Because mm. you know you'll probably find some interesting longs and shorts. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I find the the way that you invest and the structure of the teams to be very intuitive. Because if you think even as an individual investor, if you were investing in your own personal account and you've just spent months researching, I don't know, say advertising companies, you don't just go to one company, build up all this IP on that one company and then think, oh, no, it wasn't a buy, so I'm going to move on to another sector now. You think, I've just got all this wonderful intellectual property. I know how the industry works. Let's take a look around and see what else is there. Yeah, um, and it's look, it's not new. I mean, that's arguably that's ultimately how um, most most people would start out to design an investment process. Mm. Uh, I think where we've probably taken it a bit further is simply to say we also see it as a, there's a risk management element to it, which mm. is if we do this and build the portfolio this way, and we think about those risk going, you know, beyond the risk of losing money in the individual stock, but the risk of all my stocks behaving the same way when a certain something happens. Mm. You know, if we had a a, a meltdown in credit um, or, a, you know, something, the US economy went into a recession. Yeah, stress testing or looking for those macro sensitivities and concentrations between the clusters, mm-hmm. uh, I think, and then looking for ways that we can potentially create uh, resilience by just minimizing um, or controlling the level of correlation between each cluster mm-hmm. and also within the cluster, you know. Uh, and that's that's what our quantum macro team is testing all the time and, um, and the toolkit is, you know, it's quite, you know, if we... If we look at our recent results, you know, we have had probably too much sensitivity to cyclicality and um, cyclicals are very cheap. So it's hard for a value, pragmatic value manager like ourselves not to be attracted to cheap companies. Mm. Um, But we're also, you know, I I think we've also tempered our enthusiasm to the extent that we, we know those stocks probably won't perform and regardless of how individually superior they are until the cycle turns Mm. Um, and the flip side of that is we haven't had enough sensitivity to to growth the stocks that we see as growth stocks in our portfolio don't behave that way Mm. okay now i think they will but you know uh in this business and everyone says they're a long-term investor but (laughs) actually everyone invests pretty much on a uh, everyone measures your performance on a quarterly Mm. horizon We've, you know, we've got a four-year, a reasonable four-year track record. We've had a really bad quarter. <laughs> so, uh, the March, our March quarter, because of that really that deep rebound in in the US, um, which um, we could have managed differently, and and we should have in hindsight. Um, but it was an extreme rebound in in credit-sensitive and growth-sensitive equities, both of which we're somewhat short. Okay. Yeah. It's... Uh, but it's an example of what we're... how we're... how we're using the tools and mm. 
and arguably, you know, it's it's deploying the, the capabilities that we have, um, yeah, because as a business four years in, team of 25, we've got more capabilities than we did, mm. you know, in the first month of Antipodes. Yeah. <laughs> so what... Um, this is a bit of off topic here, but what would you say to someone? So, say you've got an investor, you're one of your clients that's looking at the results. What would you say to them to focus on right now? Um, look, the the focus is always, I think, in any manager who's, who's you know up through the ups and downs is are they you know are they staying true to what they you know to to the the philosophy and the process because mm. uh, I think if the manager if you start to see that drift then you know you should be should be concerned i think mm. you know drift is different to evolution right everyone pragmatic value in terms of how we actually implement that from a process perspective absolutely evolves because mm. you're going to be doing things differently with a team of 25 to a team of two mm. um but um but but you know but but changes of oh you know all of a sudden you know, it's it makes sense to buy growth at any price. No, <laughs> like that's that would be a big, uh, I think, a big warning sign. I think ultimately, um, it's test the manager on on whether they are, you know, essentially st- sticking to sticking to the plan. Mm. Yeah, one thing we would always focus on when I was looking at funds was that is the manager true to label? Mm. Because if you are you you bought the. I think of it as results are transient. What happens in the next six months is what what happens in the next six months. But what you're really buying is the process. So if you believe in the process, you should stay the course. That's the way I think about it anyway. Mm. Um, one thing that you've alluded to is the short book. Yep. Some managers say they're long short when in actual fact they might just use index futures or some broad-based shorting to try and provide some protection do you are you more active than that and the second part of this question is is it effectively a pairs trade when you've got these clusters of companies you find it's not as obviously it's not as simple as find the worst short that and buy the best but is that how you think about it um look it it's it sort of is you know yeah that's important yeah, <laughs> yeah okay it's, um, but it's never simple in execution no. but in 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 principle yes uh yeah, you know, and and absolutely, the the whole industry research and you know is is really there. That process is to find well, is the risk reward ultimately when we get to the investment case, you might say, wow, this is a really great company, but the market look at the multi, look at how it's priced relative to its peers, relative to its DCF. Yeah, we can't make it work. But this company is going to kill everything else in the industry. Mm. And look at how these companies are priced. Yeah. You know, they wow, they're really expensive. No one sees the risk that these companies are going to be the pressure that these companies are going to be on. So you may end up with a short without the long. Yeah. You may end up with depending. You know, it comes down to the risk reward that we see. Mm. And then we're shorting fundamentally lacks asymmetry. Mm. You know, longs. What's great about investing long? Well, the market generally goes up mm-hmm. and longs have great positive asymmetry mm-hmm. you know you you can you can manage you can average down mm-hmm. and your position's not getting you know you don't have that horrible averaging up in a short and your position's constantly getting bigger yeah there's a natural limit where you cannot 
you know, you, where you cannot average up anymore. Mm. Um, so position sizing, we, we, you know, we'd typically be much, much smaller in shorts with a similar risk reward type profile mm. than, than, than longs. Um, and, you know, the good thing about, you know, the way we built the business, it's, you know, where um, you know, of our eight and a half billion that we're managing, you know, we've got a, you know, roughly a third is long only, yeah. um, a little bit higher. And uh, so we've got a nice balance between long only, long short. Um, and the long short is, you know, majority is global long short, but we also do sort of Asia, Asia long short. Okay. Um, and so, look, I mean, part of our approach was to, when we set entities up, was try and keep the business side of things as simple as possible. So we launched with three strategies. We still have the three strategies, but we want them to be available in a you know, ubiqu- you know, ubiquitous manner mm. around the world. So we've, you know, we've really pushed in terms of uh, market access, you know, we have the long only in the EQMF yep. on exchange. We have the long short in the APL LIC and, uh, and we have the long only long short also available via usage mm. funds offshore and um, Asia via Cayman mm. offshore. So we're, you know, keep it simple. Don't, don't do strategy diversification just for the sake of it. Mm keep the team focused and uh, and there's a lot of synergy in what we do because there's no, you know, we've got the long only, long short. Um, our long book is the same. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, there's one presentation that you did recently and I know you can talk for a long time on this so I'll actually just maybe to give us a slightly more concise version although it is fascinating. And the, the presentation they did was on investing in a world of populism. Can you explain... The concept and some of the implications and how you manage it yeah um, I, I think populism for us is <clears throat> if you think back to the early 80s i'll keep it concise yeah <laughs> inflation you know you you had um you know inflation the, the fed started to get serious about controlling inflation yep and you know and hence we've had a, a bull market which is sort of in some ways still going mm. um and you know what what we all got programmed i think over that period of time to ignore politics mm. you know ignore anyway you know just ignore politics and and, and ignore even global risk events i wonder if things are changing just now um and i think it's mainly changing because politicians realize that Leverage, we've probably reached the end of the road in terms mm. of leverage it, at, a, at a very high level. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that there, there are not sort of assets that can't sustain more leverage, but at a high level, if we, if we just thought about government balance sheets, household balance sheets and corporate balance sheets. So what do you do next? Mm. You know, in the next downturn, what asset are we going to leverage to create the, you know, the economic activity? Mm. I think when I don't think we are. I think we're going to create inflation, and I think um, we're moving to a world where governments will stimulate or use the fiscal lever aggressively, and central banks will monetize it. Right. Right. And um, now you can say, oh well, haven't we been living through that 
at the moment? Well, maybe, but most of the QE has just ended up in excess reserves in the banking system. Mm. You could argue that it's held down government bond, it's held down interest rates and it's allowed um, the US to borrow and, you know, cheaply and fund its fiscal, you know, three and a half percent fiscal deficit never seen before in a time of outside mm. of a time of recession or war. Mm. Um, but that's, that's that fiscal deficit in the US, I think, reflects populism, polarization, the fact that there's no middle ground. Um, now, that's somewhat unique to the US electoral system, which can be systematically, has been systematically gerrymandered. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's no, there's either, you're either extreme blue or extreme red, and the election gets decided by three, four swing states. Mm. That's, that's US politics, but that's somewhat global politics now. Mm. Um, and uh, fiscal uh, excesses are coming, and we've had it in the US, I think it's probably coming in Europe. And, uh, and markets aren't really thinking about the longer term implications. Mm. And so one of the things that, you, that struck me from your presentation was we've become used to this idea of global, globalization. And this might almost be an opportunity for that to reverse. How do you, how do you think about that? I think it is it is reversing. I think we are going to that sort of more uh, almost multipolar type environment. Um, I think you know you'll have an Asia sort of more of an Asia economic block anchored mm. by China. Uh, and then you got the US and sort of. China, Russia together maybe and you know US and Europe or US seems to just want to go it alone at the moment but, yeah. Um, yeah I think <clears throat> governments as they as they become concerned about growth and this whole idea of tariffs it's about trying to bring activity back home right mm. um, and the Europeans are starting to you know are floating this idea of a carbon tariff which would obviously be a, a tariff on China. Mm. Um, so it's it's all part of this, you know. I think populism and um, and how globalization kind of made sense to the extent that you were accessing cheaper labor markets. Or, but there was a point I think where it went being from being a sort of a, a free market concept to being this sort of capitalist capitalist concept mm. um, because you know maybe the benefits of, of globalization have not been shared particularly well and so social cohesion start you know starting to fray and you know it's 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 a bit sad that that gets blamed on you know because in, insularity won't lead to a better outcome I don't think no necessarily and uh you know the laws of comparative advantage are, I mean you should you stick to what you're good at right mm. tariffs don't help that um, so yeah that's no, it's it's unfortunate because and I think it's in it's magnifying the current cyclical slowdown we're seeing is just corp there's so much corporate uncertainty around mm. trade and supply chains and where to invest and it's you know it's affecting the credit multiplier you've got very cheap interest rates is it who's borrowing mm. and yeah that's 
I think that's an interesting question. Perhaps we can talk now as we come to the end of this is just how you're investing it on the back of this. And I've heard you say before that you're almost avoiding domestic US. Um, you're seeing excesses in things like venture capital and we see you know, unicorns, those types of things these days. So, And then another thing you mentioned is the, what, the, the impact that low rates are having on the slower growth businesses in the US or businesses that should be investing perhaps. So perhaps you can just flesh that out for us and how that ties into your yeah, look, early beliefs. I think a good example is you know, US domestic. When we say domestic, we're really talking about companies that are not competing globally, they're competing locally like retailers. Um, look, you think about all the retailers that are caught between Amazon and, and Walmart and you know, Amazon pushing into, you know, pushing as it gets closer to the customer with one day delivery, mm. pushing into lower margin areas, uh, groceries, um, Walmart wanting to maintain its dominance in groceries, giving free delivery or it, yeah, look, every way you look at it, if, if you swing into a Walmart and, and someone's gone around and picked up all your groceries for you, or even if you don't pick them up, but they get delivered, I mean, that's a lower margin business hmm. all right, to you, self-service. Hmm. Walmart has the financial where, you know, they have the financial resources to subsidize that activity because they want to win mm. and they can win. They have to win. I don't know. I'm thinking about Kroger and like, you think about some of these companies that, number one, they've bought back a lot of stock so they have a lot of leverage. Can they actually sustain that competitive fight with mm. Walmart, strong incumbent on one hand and you know, sort of Amazon, a strong disruptor? On, on the other hand, that's what we see in lots of different industries in domestic US. Too much leverage in some of the weaker incumbents under competitive threat from new entrant, disruptive new entrants and other strong incumbents. And the credit markets have facilitated that. The Fed has facilitated that. So we're living through one of the most vibrant periods of technology, technological disruption. Mm. no one's going broke mm. it doesn't gel right like if if the disruption the disruption is successful but the cost is being at the moment it's being somewhat papered over by very forgiving credit markets i, I think that's a fairly toxic mix at some point in time the fed well commentators have often said that the fed doesn't want the US to become Japan, i.e. enter a period of sustained deflation. Mm. It's almost guaranteed to happen if you keep running super loose monetary policy globally um, because central banks are, are basically you know, underwriting very forgiving credit markets, mm. which are then bailing out the wrong companies, the, the weaker companies are the ones who are getting, who, who are borrowing. And uh, look, I think similar to what we saw in subprime, that can, that can end very, very badly. Mm. Um, but, you know, it might go on for, a, so how do we position the portfolio mm. in that environment? Um, I think be careful about, you know, when you're buying, you know, we've got a cluster of um, cyclical businesses, industrial businesses, mm -hmm which we think are actually growing in a secular sense. So okay. the two big ones, you know, Siemens, GE. Siemens, 
it's the more cyclical parts of it are really uh, couldn't be better if you thought European stimulus infrastructure stimulus was coming as we do Siemens is the ready-made stock mm-hmm. now the great thing is you don't need that to happen um, because of how the, pri- the company's priced today but secondly it has this secular growth part of the business digital factory which is mm. very software uh, centric business um, you know they do they have a business called Menta Graphics, which competes mm. against Altium mm. and you know your listeners will know Altium it's one of the most highly rated local stocks mm. well, Siemens has a big Altium embedded in it but it goes way beyond designing the semiconductor it designs the entire manufacturing process and then it also implements it mm. so you can imagine the kind of lock you know you've got companies like you know Daimler, Mercedes, you've got Boeing using their software and, and, you know, and, and it's hardware as well. So you've got the full package. Mm. You buy that stock of 13 times. Mm. You know, that's to me very, very interesting. GE, um, high multiple, but, you know, you've got the world's best aerospace business. In, in both companies, you've got great healthcare exposures. Um, look for quality and growth in less obvious parts of the market um you know in drugs in the drugs in the drug companies um you know <clears throat> longs and shorts but you know merck for us is a great long story you know the Cotruda hit hit a home run in the immune immuno oncology with Cotruda. um but at the early innings of actually you know harvesting all of that r&d and you know building out salesforce and we think they'll be able to bring that what is a late stage treatment to ca- for cancer into early stage with you know significant increase in the in the addressable market um, you've got a business that doesn't hasn't been gouging its patients in the US so even if politicians focus on drug prices which we think they will uh, Merck is nowhere near the top of their list in terms right. of serial offenders by the way I can't think of a sector today that doesn't have significant political risk mm. in some form. So the idea that it's, you know, it's clearly coming for big tech. Um, it's coming, you know, it's always been there in financial services. It's always been there in healthcare. So it's a question of knowing where, to a certain extent, you know, where the risks actually lie in terms of specific companies. Mm. Um, Look, I think you can make technology still interesting. We're living in a world of, of serial disruption. Um, it's thinking about where maybe the, what you should pay for a company. You know, if you think about where Microsoft is, it's absolutely in the sweet spot. You know, it's the, the, the Azure you know, platform business is basically just harvesting customers off their existing mm. servers. Um, they're switching off support for window for a bunch of different Windows and Office products, which will simply mean that Office they'll get converted to Azure and then to Office 365. And then you think about what Office 365 can become longer term. You know, as they add the continuing, you know, just continue to build out the offering mm. uh, and what you may be able to ultimately charge for a, a very integrated bundle versus the best of breed SaaS offering. You know, and I think the best of breed SaaS offering has been where all the excitement, you know, mm. there that's where all the nosebleed 
multiples really are. I think, you know, Microsoft to a lesser extent, um, Google, but um, probably also AW, you know, Amazon. Uh, I was going to say Oracle, but um, <laughs> you know, are, are all sort of starting to flex. I think their, their their muscles and think, well, you know, we can we can push we can push into some of these other, you know, we've got a great platform. Let's just keep going horizontal. Yeah, to get as much of the customer wallet as we possibly can. Yeah. So looks expensive. Uh, you know, some value investors might say, oh, Microsoft, how can you own that? It's, you know, it's growing now at a faster rate than it's, it's, it's grown for a long time. Mm. And I, I think it's still a reasonable model, multiple for the quality of business. Uh, now, I can't say that for all of the fangs, but we don't all own all of them. Mm. You know, we own Microsoft and we own Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Um, so look, interesting opportunities out there. You need to be, I think you, you've got to have some cyclicality, but look for the structural growers there. Cyclicality, cyclicals are cheap. Um, be careful around the, the growth at any price, especially the ones that are weaker business models. Um, and, and just be open to the idea that the US economic cycle is, you know, it's pretty long in the tooth. Mm really for the big discount that you have ex-US, all you need to see is that the rest of the world catches up. You know, if that divergence between US growth and rest of world growth doesn't grow, you'll be making more money in European banks than you will in US banks mm. just because of the starting multiple. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Funny to think on. Uh, as we come to the back of the conversation, I just, just one little process question I, I had here is you, you've got the short book do you use gold exposure to hedge the portfolio yeah we, we we've we've used uh, we've owned gold stocks in two different sort of environments um, we owned them in 2015 16 really because they were very very cheap yeah and you looked at the self-help that the companies were going through and regardless of what the gold price was, you could pretty much own them. Yep. Then more recently, after they sold off and people sort of gave up on gold, we thought, well, self-help has kind of worked. They've repaired their balance sheets. Uh, cost inflation is sort of still under control. Mm -hmm. um, but you weren't getting them as cheaply, so it was a little bit more about the gold price. Yep. And, you know, we took a view that gold would, you know, in an environment where yield curves were starting to flatten, you know, gold price should, should do okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is pretty much the end of the conversation, Jacob. Um, one question which I always ask is how can our listeners can contact well, with you or with Antipodes and, and invest if they choose to do so? Um, so the easiest way would simply be, um, you know, via our, our website. So um, antipodespartners.com. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have a lot of you know, content there. Um, and um, so they can sort of get a sense of 
how we invest, uh, what our portfolios look like, mm. and uh, and we you know we we have regular monthly communication, quarterly communication. We do tend to do webinars on a on a quarterly basis. Mm. And um, you have the stock. I noticed there was a write up on Siemens, for example. So some good insights there as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, look, we um, we always make sure our how analysts, I think it's always a good exercise to take the investment case and then, uh, you know, ask the analyst to then, you know, get it down to 300 words. <laughs> so. Okay, great. Um, I'll provide a link to that Siemens report in the show notes too. But final question, which is a little philosophical, just a little one on the end here, is if you could go back and tell a younger you something about money, finance or investing, what would it be? Good question. Um, it's... I think one thing, you know, you've got to think about this as a as a long a long long game. Yep. Um, and when you're when you start, what are you? You're short on experience, but you're probably long on. You don't have the baggage, right? Mm. So it's 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 an interesting dichotomy because you'll come in and see things with fresh eyes. And typically, there'll be older people around you saying, "Oh, don't, that's that's ridiculous," and all, all that sort, of, all those sorts of things. So I think you know, be prepared to back yourself. I think you know, don't yes, listen, but don't always accept the prevailing wisdom. Hmm. Now, question the prevailing wisdom. Great advice, Jacob. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning into the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.